Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another uh, another episode of New Books Network. I'm Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, we are honored to have uh, David Coates with us. He's the author of a wonderful book called Red List, MI5 and British Intellectuals in the 20th Century, which was recently published by Verso Publishers. David, welcome to New Books Network. Um, David, can you please tell us uh, how did this book come about? Uh, The book came about because um, it's a follow-up to a book I published in 1978 about the American witch hunts, which was called The Great Fear. Uh, That's a long time ago, and I've done a lot of different work in between. But um, it came back to me when I saw that MI5's files were being released to the National Archive in London. It came back to me that I ought to have a look and see what we could find about the situation in Britain. And uh, indeed, that's what I did. And thank you. And and um, in the book, you, you mentioned another historian, Christopher Andrew, and you sort of disagree with Christopher Andrew because he states that MI5 uh, clearly separated issues of national security from party politics, whereas you disagree with him. Can you expand on that point, please? Yes. um, It it was impossible um, to dissociate MI5's pursuit of different intellectuals from the question of party politics, because MI5 had its eye mainly on the Communist Party of Great Britain, but also on all left-wing parties which had a passing relationship or collaboration with the Communist Party. And uh, also the second thing is that the bias of Christopher Andrews' history of MI5 is very clear. And um, Andrew clearly sympathized with the main thrust of MI5's investigations um, of individual intellectuals. So that's my answer. And and MI5 
Uh, I was wondering, because in the first chapter of the book, we do talk about how MI5 evolved. So can you talk about the origins of MI5 and since when did they become obsessed with Russian revolution and, and the so-called communists in England? Yes, MI5 began in, I think, um, 1909 as a small intelligence service to investigate mainly German um, threats to British security because the, there was a kind of Cold War growing up and a hot war between um, Britain and Germany. Um, but during the war, um, the Bolshevik, during the First World War, the Bolshevik Revolution took place much to the disadvantage of the British because the Bolsheviks were withdrawing from their military alliance with Britain and France. And so within MI5, hostility um, grew towards the Bolshevik Revolution, but it was also the case that the Bolshevik Revolution was, so to speak, communist and Bolshevik. And the main personnel in MI5 and their um, their emissaries in Russia deeply disapproved of um, this left-wing bias, um, this communist bias. So by the time that the British Communist Party was formed in 1920, MI5 regarded it as the main enemy, the main danger to British security, uh, Germany having been defeated. And, and uh, in England, there was also a British Communist Party in, uh, and in 1920s after Russian, um, after the Bolshevik Revolution, British Communist Party became the main target of MI5. Uh, so did MI5 really have any substantial suspect? Or was it just paranoia or did they really have any evidence that the British Communist Party was, uh, was a danger to national security? Well, you can divide that question. First of all, the British Communist Party was founded by Lenin and the Comintern, with the Comintern mm. being the Communist International. And the British Communist Party, though very small, um, had devoted allegiance to the Comintern and was completely hostile to British interve military intervention in Russia, which, as you may remember, took place on the side of the white armies in Russia. But on the other hand, the British Communist Party was so small um, that it hardly posed a threat to British security. And um, MI5 continued to believe that it did. And um, I've quoted Isaac Deutscher uh, on whether the Soviet Communist Party was intent on overthrowing capitalism in Britain or not, and I came to the conclusion that it was not. Yeah, thank you. You actually answered my next question because I wanted to read the quote uh, on page 37 about this, but you just addressed that. <laughs> thank you very much, Dan. Yeah. Uh, an important part of the book, which really fascinated me, was about the role of uh, BBC in uh, and also MI5. So you do mention in the book that they sort of were like a semi-official, maybe part of... Uh, MI5, I mean, they kind of helped MI5 in suppressing the intellectuals or not giving voice to them. So can you talk about the role of BBC and MI5? How did they work? And what was their method of leaning rather than stifling? That's what you have on page 20, 256 of the book. Well, the problem of the, of the BBC and MI5 is complicated by the passage of time. 
BBC was founded in 1922 and didn't pay very much attention to the preoccupations of MI5. But by the time of the Cold War, which is after 1945, the BBC was very much under the uh, under the rule, um, I think rule is the wrong word, under the sway of MI5 regarding who was appointed to positions in MI5, in, in the BBC, I beg your pardon, and um, what particular speakers um, could be allowed um, to lecture or talk on the BBC. And the BBC, with regard to a number of people, um, like J.B. Prusse and um, later um, a host of communist historians in Britain, and then later to a host of artists and writers and dramatists in Britain. Um, the BBC had its man um, who was appointed by MI5 to prevent um, uh, people who were thought to be subversive, which meant in fact that they were rather left wing, from actually broadcasting. And my book gives a lot of detail about how MI5 intervened to, get to, to prevent um, leading historians and, and, and scientists and so on from talking on the airwaves. Mm -hmm. And uh, another fascinating part of your book is about the, the, the labor movement or the labor left in uh, and MI5. And you have, we had the prime minister then back then in England, Harold Wilson. Uh, did MI5 actually have any any fight on Harold Wilson? And I guess uh, in the book, you also state that Hal Wilson uh, talks about suspicious, let's say, burglaries in his place, because that was also one of the techniques that MI5 used to spy on intellectuals or anybody they deemed to be a risk to, to Britain. Well, uh, the case of Harold Wilson, who came to power in 1964 and stayed in power till 1970, then he came back in 1974 briefly. The case of Harold Wilson is peculiar because he's the first British prime minister who seriously came under suspicion from MI5 mm. uh, as being connected to Russian agents. Um, and um, Wilson was extremely indignant when he discovered that a file had been um, opened on him and that file was hidden. So I've never seen it. Um, but that's the case of Harold Wilson. I don't think it applies to any other British Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. And do you see any parallels between this and also the way the Labour Party treated Jeremy Corbyn and accusations of anti-Semitism against him? Uh, I don't think there's a, any connection um, with accusations of anti-Semitism. Um, and I think, since you've raised that subject, but it's outside the scope of my book yeah. chronologically completely, mm. I think that what was called anti-Semitism was more often anti-Zionism, which was, uh, I think, the essence of the trouble within the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, let's talk about some famous historians who came under MI5 surveillance. You mentioned a lot of them, but two of the most famous ones are E.P. Thompson and Hobsbawm. So can you talk about this? So what, what was it that uh, kind of made MI5 suspicious of them? How did MI5, uh, you know, keep an eye on them? 
Well, I mean, to begin with, both um, Hobsbawm and Thompson, who was a younger man than Hobsbawm, were members of the Communist Party and of the Communist Party's historians group, which was extremely influential and quite talented. So it wasn't difficult for MI5 to pick up that connection. In Thompson's, in, I beg your pardon, in Hobsbawm's case, we find that when he graduated from Cambridge in, I think, 1940, at the beginning of the Second World War, we find that although he was linguistically immensely talented, that uh, MI5 prevented his appointment to any job or post to do with intelligence. So he remained um, an ordinary soldier, then a sergeant, connected perhaps with the Education Corps, but then he would put up wall posters saying there should be a second front in Europe and um, commanding officers of his regiment, of his um, unit, um, sent in to MI5 or military intelligence reports against him. Thompson was um, a very left-wing Marxist historian um, who wrote the famous book, The Making of the English Working Class. And he was very active politically, and he wrote many letters to comrades, which were intercepted, as were Hobsbawm's. Um, remember that MI5 not only intercepted telephone conversations, but um, letters as well. And um, so Thompson was constantly under surveillance until he rebelled at the time of the Hungarian Revolution, 1956. And left the Communist Party. Uh, another chapter of your book, which I found fascinating, was about uh, black liberation and Africanist. An interesting part is that you also talk about some about some uh, American um, uh, American uh, you know, activists. So, can you talk about the role of maybe racial prejudice? Uh, in this anti-intellectual hysteria in uh, MI5, you talk about, for example, CLR James, Paul Robs Robson. Yes, um, the thing is that um, MI5, which um, reflected the, the general outlook of the British establishment, was very in, uh, uh, hostile to any colonial, anti-colonial anti movement, whether in India or West Africa. And so they were not only um, prejudiced a bit uh, about people's colour, but they um, jumped on characters like Paul Robeson and C.L.R. James, who were in favor of black liberation in the British colonies. And um, Robeson, of course, was uh, a bait noir of um, the FBI and of the House Un-American uh, Un Activities Committee because he was pro-Russian. He was very pro-Russian, pro-Soviet, pro-Stalin. And um, so the British and American intelligence services um, combined information to be very hostile to uh, Robeson, who lost his passport and couldn't travel, his American passport. Yeah, and, and he did travel to, to to Russia on a couple of occasions, I guess. He was invited there by by, by the Russians. Yes. Uh, yeah. And uh, one, one thing I like about this book is that you talk about authors, you talk about historians. It's also, well, and one thing I found really surprising was that it was even scientists who 
uh, who came under the suspicion of MI5. Can you talk about that? Why was it that even scientists in 1930s uh, became uh, became target for MI5? And who were some of these famous uh, scientists? Well, the famous scientists, uh, mainly J.D. Bernal, um, Francis Needham, um, and um, Blackett. Um, so the problem was that the scientists as a whole were very pro-Soviet in the 1930s. They, they thought that what was going on in Russia was a, a, a revolution of the intelligentsia rather than the working class, and that Russia was going to be a planned scientific society free of the chaos which was prevailing during the Great Depression in Britain. Um, but also, um, these some of these scientists um, were highly, um, highly skilled in matters to do with war, so that when the war against Hitler came along, um, they were employed in very senior positions for research uh, and advice. Uh, and MI5 noticed this very strongly and was constantly warning the military that these people uh, could be dangerous, could have double allegiance. Um, and that applied to Bernal, to Blackett. Blackett was against the British atomic bomb and that got him in hot water. Um, Needham was pro-Chinese, pro-Chinese communist, and that got him in hot water. And um, during the Korean War, when it was alleged that the Americans had used um, German warfare, um, Needham joined a group of scientists who generally, broadly endorsed that as true. So Needham was persona non grata in, in America. Um, that was the general um, fact that a, a large number like Dorothy Hodgkin and a large number of scientists um, were, were generally pro-Soviet. Pro and um, MI5 knew that and followed them very closely. Uh, I come from a literary background, therefore, writers uh, are kind of like my passion and in the book and I was when I when, when I came across the book I was looking for George Orwell and his notorious list because he also put together a list of uh, those uh, intellectuals who sympathized with the with the Soviets so but, but he was also under suspicion from MI5 uh, can you talk about maybe some of the ways that MI5 uh scrutinized writers, specifically George Orwell? Well, um, some reviewers of my book, Red List, have made the mistake of not looking at the right index and have com complained that Orwell is not in the index, but he is. He's in the index of victims. And it, in that, um, you'll find the pages where, since 1930, he's been reported on as a left-wing pro-communist, even when he was in um, living in France. Um, he was um, a contributor to the uh, left book review and um, left books in general, but he became quite anti-communist, quite strongly anti-communist um, by the time of the Second World War. 
And um, there's a famous incident which you've just mentioned when he was very ill in 1949 with tuberculosis, in effect dying. And he had a, a female friend who had joined the independent research department of the foreign office, which was a kind of MI5. And um, he, he sent her a list of people who he called fellow travelers who might be a danger to British security uh, and who might be subversive. And that list has become notorious, uh, although it was actually never used. Thank you for explaining this. And uh, one, one fascinating case you talk about your book, you discuss in your book is Claire Sheridan, who is Winston Churchill's cousin. And apparently there was this episode of even despite being Churchill's cousin, Claire was also a suspect. And there was an episode of sexual harassment or accusation of sexual harassment from Mussolini. I'm sure our listeners will find it fascinating if you explain that. Well, you're in a very different period there. Claire Sheridan crops up in from 1920, right at the beginning. Hmm. And she was a sculptor. And um, she did a number of distinguished British um, politicians and statesmen um, and her sculpture was much admired. Then she decided in 1920 to go to Russia to, to do models of the Soviet leaders like Trotsky and Lenin and Zinoviev and so on. And she did, and she had a very hard time. She was an aristocrat from a good, from, from a good background. And when I say good, I mean a comfortable, wealthy background. And she found life in Russia very hard indeed in 1920-21. But she pulled off some marvelous sculptures and um, MI5 knew all about that. And, but they regarded her as a bit of a, of a joke. I mean, she, she, she became a prolific journalist, um, but worked for American newspapers, but um, nobody took her terribly seriously in political terms, though she was a, uh, a, a, a very good sculptor. And uh, can you broadly tell us about some of the techniques that MI5 used against uh, to, 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 to kind of, you know, control or keep an eye on, on intellectuals, right? As you talk about, for example, the stage burglaries, I'm sure they intercepted their correspondence as well. What were some of the common techniques that MI5 used against intellectuals? Well, the common techniques were, first of all, informers, um, within a particular organization. And they were very clever at planting people who appeared to be communists, um, appeared to be left-wing, and to gain the trust of um, communist colleagues and so on, but reported relentlessly to MI5, who put it all in the file. Another technique uh, which I've mentioned was intercepting letters. And MI5 had the general post office at its disposal for opening, steaming open, open letters. Mm. Um, then the bugging of telephones was very common, particularly Communist Party headquarters in King Street, Covent Garden was constantly bugged. And um, th those, th they used the special branch of the Metropolitan Police, which is the London Police, to follow people. They did, the special branch did most of the following. 
um, on foot uh, or however. And they um, reported to MI5 the whole time. Uh, and within the special branch, whose members were not always, shall we say, highly enlightened or educated, you get the anti-Semitism and the anti-racism mm -hmm. and the anti-Black prejudice coming through, um, which the, the better educated officers of MI5, who basically, um, basically in the early years came from the colonial service or the military and had those sort of right-wing opinions, they didn't necessarily accept the racial aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And... Uh... In all this obsession of MI5 with intellectuals, because um, you cover a vast period, you cover a lot of different uh, intellectuals, scientists. Did you find any really substantial evidence that they were really a threat? Or do you think it was part of a general, you know, Cold War hysteria, maybe, of being obsessed with intellectuals? Um, well, but the basis of the book is that there was very little foundation to mm -hmm. any suspicion of, of subversion by intellectuals. Um, the um, prejudice of MI5 for a whole, almost a whole century was that anyone who had any connection with any organization which had any connection with the Soviet Communist Party must be su suspect and, and likely subversive. Mm. And that carried through to organizations like the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, CND, mm, mm. Um, in the later years, um, and huge hostility towards the National Council for Civil Liberties, um, which was occasionally had a bit of communist influence, but not very much. It was basically a liberal organization. Um, so ha have I answered your question on that? Yes, yes, I have. And uh, as a last question to bring this interview to an end, I'm going to ask a hypothetical question because I'm interested in your idea as a historian. Uh, do you think still in um, 21st century, uh, the British intelligence services still maybe with more subtle techniques is suspicious or keeping an eye on intellectuals, writers, people who might be against the mainstream politics of... Uh, in England? Well, of course, um, the Soviet empire collapsed in, I think, 1989-1990. And um, at first, it seemed that the so-called Soviet danger had gone away. And relationships diplomatically with Russia improved. Um, they're obviously very bad again now with the war in the Ukraine. Um, but basically, the thing to remember is that the pursuit of communists and fellow travelers and similar sympathizers with the Soviet Union um, ceased to be the main occupation of MI5 after about 1990. Um, and the attention of MI5 turned to other threats to British security, like um, various Middle Eastern, um, uh, like Al-Qaeda, terrorist organizations, and sympathy for them for amongst, um, say, Muslims living in Britain, so that what MI5 had to do was to change its, its clothes and its attitude, and um, there were no, 
no great space for old colonels and old colonial district officers. It was now you needed informers from within the, the British Muslim communities, people who spoke the local language and could appear to be um, in favour of um, Muslim um, mm. movements or anti-imperial movements or anti-American movements. Mm. That, be that became... The other um, thing that MI5 had to do was to deal with um, Republican terrorism in Ireland. Um, and there again, there was this huge um, recruitment of Irish or Ulster um, personnel who could appear to be sympathetic towards the mm. um, terrorist movements like the IRA. Um, so that was again a huge switch of inf influence, but I haven't seen because they're not available and they're not part of my subject any of the files on those people. Uh, David, I cannot thank you enough for your time and for talking about this fascinating book. Thank you very, very much. It's a pleasure.